Welcome to HCMA Off the Record, your behind-the-scenes look and listen into the world of emergency management. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. From preparedness tips to intra-agency coordination to advice from the men and women responsible for protecting the district, HCMA Off the Record shares it all. Whether you're an EM nerd like us or learning about emergency management for the first time, come along for the ride. Hello and welcome back to HCMA Off the Record. I'm Chris Rodriguez, Director of the DC Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. I hope that you and your loved ones have been staying safe throughout this year. The coronavirus pandemic has really become the center of conversations both locally and nationally. From a government perspective, we certainly understand that COVID-19 has forced us to adjust almost all aspects of our daily lives, and that COVID fatigue is real. But we must remember that our efforts are saving lives. Under the leadership of Mayor Bowser, the District of Columbia government has been working on the city's pandemic response since late February, which we'll be diving into a bit uh, as we're joined today by Dr. LaQuandra Nesbitt, the director of the D.C. Department of Health. Dr. Nesbitt and I have been working hand-in-hand for the last nine months, and for today's episode, we're going to be highlighting the district's response and recovery efforts. Dr. Nesbitt, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, Before we jump into all things COVID-19, can you share with our listeners what brought you into public health? How did you get started in this field? Sure. So, um, you know, it's it, depending on the audience, I tell either a long version or a short version um, of this story. But, uh, you know, when you're going through your health uh, training or your medical training is probably the best way for me to describe it, because uh, in, in my time, we were just getting to a place, I think, in medicine where uh, we were dealing very earnestly with the juxtaposition of, of clinical medicine and health and looking at patients holistically. Now I'll say that and people will say, oh, it's always been there. Um, but there were more training programs that were coming around that um, were geared toward combining um, the clinical medical experience uh, with people who had an interest in public health. Um, so my first residency program that I went to, uh, I matched into that program because they had an opportunity for you to do your residency in family medicine uh, and public health. Um, Now, I transferred from that program into uh, a different residency program uh, in Maryland, where um, I ultimately served as chief resident. And one of the faculty members there um, had heard about a health policy uh, fellowship program um, at Harvard that she thought would be great for me, uh, based on some of the things that I had expressed an interest in during my residency program. I've really begun to be interested in what were some of the reasons why our patients in our practice in, in Baltimore um, were not achieving the same health outcomes um, that others in the city uh, were experiencing, and why they were really faced with challenges with Um, adhering to the health plans that we would put together for them. Uh, We would talk about why their blood pressure was high and what they needed to do to control that blood pressure. Um, And they would experience tremendous challenges uh, with being able to adhere to those plans, largely because of the social and environmental context in which they lived. Um, And so I went on to do that fellowship in health policy. 
uh, and came back and spent some time in academic medicine and uh, largely became interested uh, through a transitional um, a health a health tra healthcare transitional uh, experience that I had in working in governmental public health, where I have been now for um, close to twelve, uh, almost thirteen years, and so um, that's a that's the shorter version um, of of the story uh, of kind of how it's been a little bit of a circuitous route uh, into where I am now working in governmental public health. Well, thanks, uh, Dr. Nesbitt, and certainly in dealing with planning and, and preparedness with some of your uh, patients. Um, it, the next question is is relevant, and the district started its COVID-19 uh, pandemic response back in February, uh, of course, under the guidance of Mayor Bowser, and many states and large cities did not respond this early in the pandemic. And, and what do you think our early response uh provided to the district? Do you think it gave us an advantage? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that most people uh, don't think about, um, and I think that, you know, this is helpful for the conversation that we're having as well, is um, people are familiar with their health department, their local health department for the services they receive from them. Uh, so we regulate a lot of things here at DC Health. So some people are, oh, they know the health department as the place that comes in and inspects their healthcare facility, or they know the health department as the place that helps their business open as they are maybe a new restaurant, right? Or they know the uh, health department as the place that they pick up their birth certificate or the place that they call because they have too many rats in their neighborhood, right? So they largely don't, um, aren't familiar with the health department's role in emergency preparedness and um, and being prepared for acts of potential potential acts of bioterrorism and a lot of the things that we do um, for exercise uh, planning with HSEMA and our partners at at MPD and, and others in the public safety cluster. What has advantaged the district in terms of its response is the tremendous amount of collaboration we have between the public health and the public safety um, sectors, whether it be how we plan for the national special security events, um, which are things that are planned and we have the opportunity to get ready for, or whether it's how we are responding to um, a hurricane, which we have, you know, 72 hour checklist that we work through. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of collaboration that we have um, that, it, you know, is almost creates this organic relationship that when something is um, has befall, you know, fall is come is that we're facing. Uh, there's sort of this symbiotic relationship uh, that we fall into our natural seats and our in our ready posture. Um, we monitor at D.C. Health. Um, these things all the time. And we don't know how they're going to end up, right? We don't know of this pneumonia um, that of what we call pneumonia of unknown etiology, which means it's a it's um, some kind of bacteria or virus that hasn't been identified. We don't know if it's going to be a big thing that spreads across the world or if it's going to be a small thing that stays in the locality in which it was first diagnosed. But whether it's big or small, we know we have the infrastructure that will allow us to quickly ramp up uh, because of our partnerships with HCMA and the Public Health Lab uh, and all of those other players that have been so critical to the success um, of the district's response to date. Um, so as, as we quickly recognize that this had the potential to become um, the world's next uh, pandemic uh, and mobilized early in February, all of that a pre-existing relationship and infrastructure that we already had, so many people within our own agency trained in ICS, 
uh, and, you know, kind of already knowing how to fall into the roles of section chiefs and branch chiefs uh, and creating that that level of depth and a, and a good bench um, was already there because of past experience. We weren't just getting to know each other for the first time. Thank you, Dr. Nesbitt. And speaking of, you know, relationships and collaboration, you know, we've as a district have been doing this for uh, about nine months now, going into our 10th month. Uh, and the district is currently in phase two of reopening. And of course, we're continuing to see cases rise precipitously across the United States. Um, do you have any concerns for the district based on where we are with our numbers today? Uh, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, you know, I, I, the thing that concerns and worries me the most is um, when you're in a pandemic for this long, which isn't the first time for this country, um, but it but it's the first time for any of us, right? Because we're not hundreds of years old. Uh, so um, I think people have started to feel powerless. Uh, and when people feel that they're powerless to change anything, um, then they think that their actions don't matter. Uh, and it's an opportunity for us to be able to communicate to people that we're not powerless in changing the trajectory of this virus and that our actions do matter. So the thing that keeps me up at night is what is the most effective way to communicate um, to our residents and people in our region that we're not powerless to controlling the trajectory um, of this virus? And how do we do it in a way that gives people um, this, this feeling of hope and optimism um, that they, these things do end? Um, we don't we have we don't haven't lived in a perpetual pandemic at any given point of time in our society. And so that's the thing that I find to be the biggest challenge is that we have, unfortunately, too many people in our communities um, that have that feel powerless to impact the trajectory of this virus. And unfortunately, they um, feel that they're doing everything that they can do personally. Uh, to impact us societally, and we need to be able to reshape their thinking uh, to shift them back to understanding how what it is that they do personally impacts us societally so we can change this trajectory and get into different place. And speaking of um, empowering residents and making them feel like they have some control over, over what we're uh, experiencing now, just a few weeks ago, your department uh, launched a D the DC COVID alert notice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, this program and how uh, residents can use it? Sure, it's, a, it's another tool that we've created. Um, and we're always cautious to communicate to people that everything that we launch is another tool in the toolkit, right? Um, and none of these things are a replacement or an opportunity to abandon the most effective strategies, right? So, um, you know, DC CAN is another thing that we use to augment um, our traditional uh, case investigation and contact tracing tools. And it's not a is not something that we've released that replaces our need to wear a mask, wash our hands, watch our distance, and be judicious about um, the activities that we participate in. What it does is it allows for us to um, have a tool that says, let's say I go to a place um, and I spend 20, at least 24 hours um, out and about, or I spend time within a 24 hour period is probably the best way to say it. Lord knows I can't spend 24 hours out and about. Um, but if I spend at least 24, within a 24 hour period, 
um, a period of time where I am around people whose names and identities are unknown to me. And I've potentially been within six feet uh, for up to 15 minutes. If both I and that individual are enrolled in DC CAN, and one of us has a positive COVID-19 diagnosis, they can become aware of their exposure to me uh, and receive information from DC Health about their exposure to me and what steps they need to do, right? So that gives um, us an additional tool that we otherwise wouldn't have um, that now allows that exposed individual to quarantine, to get tested. Um, so they're not out there potentially spreading uh, COVID-19 to individuals. Um, before we had to rely very heavily on contact tracing in the traditional sense of people providing a list of names of their close contacts. So this helps to supplement it and augment it. But we wanna caution people against this notion that, oh, I've turned the app on my phone on, so now I can go to parties uh, with hundreds of people uh, that are not authorized anywhere in this region and the app will just let us all know if we've been exposed. Um, it's not designed to, to promote that kind of reckless behavior. So we really wanna make sure that people aren't now doing those things. Thank you, uh, Dr. Nisbet. And you know, in, in the last um, several days, we've seen a lot of uh, talk about the, the a potential vaccination or a vaccine. Um, certainly I know your agency has done a lot of work over the last several months, but even before COVID in, in talking about how to distribute vaccines uh, in a global pandemic. Is there anything you can share uh, with our listeners about the district's preparations for vaccine distribution? Sure, so um, as you've mentioned, we've done a lot in terms of distributing what we call medical countermeasures and, and thinking through um, pods and key strategic partnerships and how to get information out there. Uh, in fact, we had a large scale exercise uh, in 2019 um, around this particular issue uh, in the district and, and it was actually a regional exercise uh, in terms of how the region would respond uh, with, with getting out medical countermeasures. So uh, lots of learnings from that uh, particular exercise. Uh, we've been working with our federal partners in close conversations with Operation Warp Speed, um, the CDC, as well as uh, partners at ASPR uh, in terms of how to have a, a, a COVID-19 a vaccine distribution plan in the district that is equitable uh, and making sure that um, we are supporting the distribution and allocation of a COVID vaccine that is safe and effective uh, in the District of Columbia. Um, we have an internal group uh, that is working through the EOC um, as well as engaged some key strategic partners through some existing coalitions that we have, the Health and Medical Coalition, uh, that brings in our key stakeholders and our major healthcare organizations, our hospital association, our long-term care partners, as well as our primary care organizations uh, in, with a particular focus on our federally qualified health centers. And we've also uh, engaged our key stakeholder coalition with our Immunize DC, uh, which has a lot of representatives of the public and private sector, uh, including uh, those who have helped to increase the district's vaccination ra uh, rates uh, for most vaccine preventable illnesses uh, for uh, extended periods of time. I mean, they've been hard at work in the district uh, helping to increase annual uh, seasonal influenza rates, um, as well as, you know, MMR and helping us combat outbreaks of uh, measles from, from time to time. Uh, and then we've created a scientific advisory committee that's 
focused specifically on COVID-19 and helping us around these strategies of, you know, taking this very complex information uh, that's out there. You know, you hear phase three clinical trials and phase four clinical trials and um, what does it really mean to be a safe vaccine or an effective vaccine and helping people really wrap their minds around it and understand that some of the existing processes that exist through uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, uh, is not going to be cutting corners when they advise the CDC uh, and what it means to have a vaccine that is receiving an emergency use authorization uh, from the FDA, how our public can have confidence in those processes. Uh, so we've been working through those major three groups um, to help with uh, help us with uh, communication, to gathering information, to understand around our prioritization of specific populations. So when the vaccine is ready, uh, when it receives its emergency use authorization from the FDA, because we understand that's the most likely process to, to occur, we'll be able to distribute vaccine equitably in the district. Um, and as you've mentioned, this isn't, we're, this isn't new to us from a logistics perspective. Um, while the logistics of each vaccine is very different, um, we have experience with tracking vaccines and, and moving vaccines through secondary distribution chains in the district and have done that effectively. So uh, we think we're well positioned for, for success here. Thank you, Dr. Nesbitt. And, and finally, um, to, to wrap us up, I know that a lot of our listeners uh, would be interested in, you know, we're rapidly approaching the holidays. And um, I guess I would ask, what are the top three things that you would recommend to residents um, as they safely celebrate uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays that are coming up with their loved ones during a global pandemic? Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to, um, you know, some of the things that we that we acknowledge has been really difficult for people uh, in terms of feeling powerless in these moments. Uh, and we're just reminding people that we can we can make some decisions and choices that will change the trajectory. Uh, we're seeing increases in cases now largely because of some uh, elements of, of human behavior. Uh, and, and we can talk about how those human behaviors are, are uh, embedded in systemic uh, operations uh, at a national level. That would, that would be like three more different podcasts, I think, though. Um, and so... Um, you know, how we would, we, we saw some increases in our cases uh, that were heavily aligned with um, what people chose to do for Halloween. And if we don't want that same thing to happen as a result of people clinging to their traditional Thanksgiving celebrations, uh, people need to really think about what that would mean societally, right? Um, and what it would mean to them to have a loved one uh, impacted as well. Um, as a result of these types of celebrations. Um, and, and I would actually um, be inspired to have um, many Thanksgivings to come uh, with my family uh, and many Christmas holidays to come uh, with my family. And so I've chose to think about it from the perspective of um, the small sacrifices, what, what in the grand scheme of things will be small sacrifices in 2020 uh, will yield many long-term gains and benefits. Uh, for for my family, and so um, that's how I would ask people to think about, um, you know, wearing a mask, watching your distance, and washing your hands, um, and thinking very very hard uh, about your uh, traditional activities. 
Well, as you've all heard, um, the District of Columbia is continuing our efforts to protect residents and work towards recovery from this unprecedented pandemic. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Laquandra Nesbitt, Director of DC Health, for being with us for this week's episode. And we're wishing all of you uh, the best as we head into the holiday season. And remember, protect yourself and those around you by wearing a mask, practicing social distancing, and washing your hands. Uh, We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode of HCMA Off the Record. Thank you, Dr. Nesbitt. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency.